Well, this morning I, 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 I kind of introduced this, the scripture through this lens of Advent teaches us to trust. And this word trust, anytime I say trust or belief or faith, any of those synonyms, I want you to hear this is the same thing. I'm talking about the same thing. Because the word pistos in the New Testament, it's the Greek word that we translate in multiple different ways, faith, belief, and trust, all of those things, they come from the same word. And when you realize how often that word is in Scripture, that it's actually three different words for the sake of variety and diversity and to kind of have different emphases, you realize how much of that has a role in how we understand ourselves and how we understand God, how we understand the church, how we understand our relationship with our neighbors. And despite that being in Scripture so often, yet we, are, we live in this world that would teach us something different, that shapes us and our understanding of relationship in very different ways. Because we live in a world that kind of perpetually seems to clamor for trust, for our trust on our terms. It appeals to what, how, we, how we define trust and the standards that we have for it. The world is eager to jump through our hoops, to present itself as worthy of our patronage and approval. And like I said, how the world earns that trust with us, it bleeds into and shapes how we view all of our relationships, especially our relationship with God, the church, and others. I'm going to summarize this posture that the world kind of cultivates as, and shapes in us as self-actualization. You may not be familiar with that word or that language, but you are very familiar with its definition, which is becoming the best version of ourselves. To become the best version of ourselves is to have a posture toward trust or a definition of trust that's kind of more like, if you've seen the show, The Shark Tank, right? Like it puts us in the seats of the, 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 the wealthy investors. We are in the driver's seat. We say to God to, and to others, prove it. We're open to giving God a hearing, but on our terms because we know best. And really, all of this is for a return on our investment anyway. Faith then becomes just something that we add to our plate. It's one kind of part of our quest to fulfill our potential. But if we're really mature, then maybe it's the entree, right? It's maybe, maybe it's the top list on a top at the list of our priorities. And then we expect that addition to make all of the other things on our plate more satisfying without that addition actually changing anything else we have on our plate. Here's the biggest problem with that. If that's our attitude toward faith, if that's our attitude toward trust, belief of God in each other, it actually has nothing to do with this. It has nothing to do with Scripture. In fact, it pushes against and is the very opposite of what trust looks like when it's fueled and centered on grace. This is this trust that I'm describing as self-actualization is a secular faith. It is a centrality of the self that actually redefines faith, and it, it redefines God as well in our own individualistic Im image. It makes God a cosmic vending machine and faith the currency that we use to get something from it. You can probably tell that that's actually not trust, right? That's a transaction. It's very different. It's also not very much fun. And Jesus' incarnation, what we are anticipating a week from now is, that, is the, our incarnation of God's empathetic intervention. 
That's what Christmas is. You realize that it is an intervention. God is having an intervention with us every Christmas and start going back to the very first one. But it's also a passionate insistence that he wants so much more for us because he wants so much more with us. He wants our trust. And so we're going to talk about how Advent teaches us to trust in three different ways this morning. The first is this. Advent teaches us to trust by redefining what's possible. When Gabriel, when Gabriel responds to Mary's question of how will this be since I am a virgin, he says all things are possible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. So he implies when asked how is this, like Mary's question is not actually a question about the mechanics of how this is going to happen. It's, it's actually an expression of disbelief. It's an expression getting to a problem of something that we can all relate to, which is a problem of imagination. A problem of imagination. It's about impossibility and possibility and the difference between the two. What Gabriel understood of Mary, because this is representative of all of us, is that our trust is limited to the degree that our imagination is stunted. Our trust is limited to the degree that our imagination is stunted. And what self-actualization does, this kind of transactional attitude toward God and others, is it stunts and limits our horizon of what is possible. Because we see everything only and exclusively from our own perspective. Another way of saying this is that by centering our finite selves, we guaranteed finite horizons of the possible. Frankly, how we observe Advent and celebrate Christmas, Christmas and, and rush, rush into Christmas exposes this reality. Um, in an article, in an op-ed by David Taylor in 2015, published on Christmas Eve, um, the title of this, this op-ed is, Biblical Birth Narratives Are Weird and Incredible. We can stop sanitizing them. I love that. Uh, David Taylor says this. He says, for Christmas in America, as a phenomenon of civic religion, the story of Jesus has no bite. It requires no imagination. A tame baby Jesus makes his annual heartwarming appearance and leaves us largely unbothered and unchanged. And I would add to that, including everything else we have on our plate. Yet when I read the birth narratives in Matthew and Luke, I am struck by how strange they are. Unsettling and fantastical at every corner. Infertility, divorce, shame, mass murder, astrologers, injustice, and doubt are just a few of the topics found therein. Y'all, can we just like, can we just own the fact that Christmas is actually really freaking weird? Like, it's, it's strange, right? We're saying that, that thousands of years ago, a guy named Isaiah predicted and said that God was going to send his Messiah through the, the pregnancy of a virgin. Like that, okay, that was weird then too, okay? And then it happens, and we just dress it up and act like that's normal? It's not normal, you guys. But more importantly than that, what, that, what, what recognizing and acknowledging that does, it actually opens us up to help us see that God doesn't hold the strangeness of that to us against us. Right? That's actually a new avenue of grace, a new opportunity to see where God meets us in our confusion because all failures of imagination when it comes to God's faithfulness are essentially our centering of ourselves. And he doesn't allow us to stay there. 
God meets us there. And on Christmas, literally so. And I don't mean that in the hipster literally, which is actually not literally. I mean literally, literally. That is what Christmas morning is. When Mary asks, how is this possible? She's expressing the universal problem of imagination, and her bewilderment is ours. In verse 37, when Gabriel says, all, he says this, for nothing will be impossible with God, and everything before this. Notice, did you, did you notice, he doesn't try to persuade her. He doesn't say, like, here are all the reasons, Mary, you should believe me. He just says, God is infinitely and unfathomably able. He's going to show off. Mary, trust him more than your limited imagination. Now, there's a part of me, I, you know, part of what I said at, at the beginning of announcements about, like, my thoughts on, you know, children singing up front and everything and how I kind of misunderstood, like, it's actually not just for the parents. Part of that is because I didn't even grow up in church. I didn't have any exposure to that, so I don't have a direct experience of that myself. And because I didn't grow up in the church, because I was not a Christian for most of my life, I have this radar that hears things like I just said as, like, me advocating in some way maybe the, uh, a blind trust. Like, you don't, you don't get it. It's okay. Just trust anyway. But that's not what's actually happening here. Because she, he, Gabriel gives her some handholds for her to, to work out because he understood something about the dynamic of trust and understanding and knowing and believing and, and all of that that we don't get because we are self-actualizing people. And that is what Augustine said many centuries ago. He said, understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, seek not to understand so that you may believe or trust, but believe so that you may understand. It turns out, that to understand what honey tastes like, you have to actually trust that it's good enough to taste first. Frankly, we, we get this, and it applies to so many areas of life. We understand that we have to, to trust enough to walk across the bridge before we actually understand that it will hold our weight in a true, full sense. But for some reason, it doesn't apply to trust relationally. It doesn't apply to our trust in God. There may actually be no greater challenge to our imagination than the idea that Augustine is articulating, that we put the cart before the horse. So Advent teaches us to trust by redefining what's possible. Also, it does so by rousing our self-renunciation. I wish I were playing Scrabble because I would score so many points with those, those just three words there. But here's what I'm trying to get at, and here's what I'm trying to summarize and, and, and like pack into these three words, is it, it actually arouses in us something that is different from self-actualization self and, and is, in effect, self-renunciation. Here's what I mean by that. If self-actualization is becoming our very best, best version of ourself, self-renunciation is giving up of one's own wishes, desires, and ambitions for another's. It's actually a giving up of self. Instead of self-fulfillment, it's self-forgetting. It's self-giving. This is very hard for American Christians to wrap our hearts around, never mind our brains. Joni Erickson Tata, in her book, Glorious Intruder, she, she articulates the implications of this and describes it this way. She says, God is an intruder. 
He encroaches, presumes, invades, and infringes. He crashes the party, tear, tears aside curtains, throws open locked doors, hits the light switch in a dark room. God pulls the fire alarm in stuffy, sacrosanct hallways. What she's describing is the experience of a Western Christian who is used to self-actualization, understanding the grace, grace's implications for self-renunciation. She goes on, she says, God intruded the womb of a virgin. He stormed Satan's kingdom on a Christmas night in Bethlehem. We talked about that last week. God is a glorious intruder in my life, my thoughts, my pain, sorrow, and brokenness. Let me be really just blunt. Many of you want Jesus to invade your pain, your sorrow, and your brokenness without letting G Jesus invade your life, your thoughts, and your purposes. And to the degree that that's the case, you will not experience Jesus invading your pain, your sorrow, and your brokenness. There is a correlation there. And you won't experience the former if you don't trust God with the latter. Like, this can, like let me just say, this can come out in so many different ways. Like, you, maybe, maybe because it's Christmas, you, uh, you are here because uh, someone you love dragged you here and promised you some kind of cookies or something. I don't, I don't know. Like, whatever the equivalent is. Yes, that is why we do the cookie potluck on Christmas Eve. No, I'm kidding. Right? Maybe, because this was me. I talked about how I didn't grow up as a Christian. Like, absolutely, this was me. And I would say, maybe you would say, um, I'll believe or trust God if he speaks to me. Right? If he just, if he comes down and makes it undeniably clear, that's all I need is, is for God to, like, meet me there. And if he would just do that, then, of course, I would believe two things about that that's just fascinating, and, and, and one of which is at least encouraging. The first is this, that, that he did come down. That's what we're talking about. He actually made that effort already. And I get that it wasn't to you directly, but it was to all of us, historically. And the second is this, that in Mary's reaction, we see something incredibly comforting and encouraging is that even if God did that as we want him to and expect him to, we would probably still be skeptical. <laughs> like, it wouldn't actually make a difference. Mary's own posture when Gabriel just greets her, like I said, was, uh-oh, what do you want, right? And then she says, how is this possible? We don't have minds. We are so compromised that we actually don't see it when God is staring us in the face. The second way this may work out is, like, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, and maybe there are some parts of your life that you have, you have stovepiped off from God. Maybe there are some things that you don't let, uh, allow him to speak into because you say something along the lines of, you know, I'll believe or trust uh, what God and his word says about how I live my life once I want to, or once I feel like it, or once it might get a little bit easier. I hate to break it to you, but dying to yourself is actually really hard. And if it's hard, that means you're probably doing it right. Or at least something remotely correct about that. And we have like these three dimensions that I think for modern Christians are particularly hard for us to, to self-renounce. And they all also start with R, so they're easy to remember. As our rest, like the way in which we do it and for what purpose we do it, our relationships, 
both the, 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 the what of our relationships and how we relate to others through grace and our responsibilities, whether that is to our neighbor, to our family, to our church. We don't want God to speak into those things because we intuitively think that the way that we do it is going to be better than the way that God made us for, which when you say it out loud, it makes that harder to justify, doesn't it? Mary shows us that trust is possible even when it doesn't make any sense at all. Mary didn't have a clue what Gabriel was talking about. And she still demonstrates this freedom of self-renunciation in verse 38. Take a look at this. Like this, the entire, everything we've re we read this morning really pivots and hinges on this verse. When Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it, to be me, let it be to me according to your word. There is a self-giving upness being articulated there, a self-renunciation that apart from which you never would get the Magnificat. You would not get the gratitude. In fact, I would say that there is a, a very clear and, and intended link when she says, I am the servant of the Lord, and then she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Worship is fulfilled and catalyzed by self-renunciation because it's in and through that that we experience this true freedom. She says, I don't have to understand because true freedom is letting the one who made you determine what you were made for, even and especially when that doesn't make sense. I wanna, actually, let me read Augustine again because I, like, if there was nothing else that the American church would get, if it were just this, it might actually make a really massive seismic difference. It's that important. Understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, seek not to understand so that you may believe, but believe so that you may understand. We can do that. We can renounce ourselves to serve God because he renounced everything to love us. That's what Christmas is. It is, it is the way up being demonstrated as actually the way down. This is what Jesus actually articulates in Matthew 20, whom our son is named after. It says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever must be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christmas is God beginning his intervention. It is the beginning of his ransoming and rescuing us from sin and death and the devil, yes, and also from ourselves. Because apart from him, we would continue in the way that we go. Praise God <laughs> that he didn't just let us continue in the way that we would go. <coughs> Here's the last thing I'll say before we get into Q&A. And it's the third way that Advent teaches us to trust, and that is by redeeming fear with gratitude. In verse 30, uh, the angel said to her, Gabriel said, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. He's saying basically, hi, God loves you. Don't be afraid because God loves you. And Mary's response being, uh-oh, is this fear and doubt that I was talking about earlier. But you would, if, 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 as I read it, you probably noticed that Gabriel has a lot to say here. It's not just a quick address. He's, he's saying a lot of things. And every single one of them, with one exception, is a promise. 
It's a statement of what is to come or what is already, with one exception. That exception is do not be afraid. It's the only thing that he actually says, Mary, do or do not do this as a ba- on the basis of all the things. He doesn't say actually go visit Elizabeth. He just says, your cousin is pregnant. Here is, here is a data point of God doing the impossible. He doesn't tell her to do anything except do not be afraid. That phrase, do not be afraid, do not fear, that phrase in various forms of it is the single most common phrase in all of Scripture for two reasons. One, because God wants to meet us in our fears, and two, we're afraid a lot. We fear a lot of things, right? It is actually, it's our default when we are confronted, especially by a need to trust. Because trust, by definition, is something you do when you don't want to do. It's something that you do if, if it was something that you wanted to do or you had enough like proof thereof, we call that common sense. We don't call that trust. We call that duh. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> right, we fear so much. We fear the dark, both literally and metaphorically. Right? We fear it not working out, whatever it is. We fear failure. We fear hurting others. We, hear being, we fear being betrayed. We fear being abandoned. We fear being less happy than we already are. We fear being more hurt than we already have been. And yet we deprive ourselves of gratitude to the degree that we let those fears determine whether or how much we trust. It is a universal human need, not just to be trusted, but to trust. Mary actually does this. When she says, may it be as your word has said, that might be the beginning of a trust. That's a decision to trust, but it's activated when she goes to visit Elizabeth. It is, it is, it's, this is the one thing that right now she can actually test and see if God's promises are true. And so she does, and so she, she, she trusts the Lord enough to go visit her cousin. And that trust, despite fear, turns fear into gratitude. As soon as she is confronted with God's trustworthiness, as demonstrated with Elizabeth's pregnancy, she erupts into poetic song. It's because gratitude is a promise of God, too. It's a gift. It's not something we muster up. Gratitude is the God-promised fruit of trust well-placed. Gratitude is the God-promised fruit of trust well-placed. Think about it this way, right? If you fear to trust something, maybe, like, like, try to think of something. Maybe there's an area, one of those three R's, whether it's your rest, your relationships, or your, um, your responsibilities. Maybe there's one of those that you had brought to mind when I was talking about them earlier, that you fear to trust what God says about them. I want you to just imagine right? Let's extend the horizons of what's possible. If God can do the impossible, imagine that trusting God might act in that area might actually be better for you. How would you feel? Probably bewildered, confused, but relieved. Because this scary thing that is dying to yourself actually results with resurrection. 
that God has promised and is reliable and trustworthy to meet you in that gap. Mary's gratitude is joy, but it's also relief of that trust well-placed. Advent provokes our fears through our need to trust God and therefore becomes an invitation to do so in a way that redeems fear with gratitude. And I want to I, I hammer so hard that everything that I'm talking about this morning, I just, it is very possible for those of us who are, who, when, the more we are self-actualizing our, in our lives as a posture, the more you likely heard everything I've said up to this point as, as a blind trust or as, as something really heavy that you've got to muster up. And I want to tell you that that is not the case. This trust is neither blind nor bootstrapped. Because if Advent is a need to trust that provokes our fear, then Christmas is in sight. It is God joyfully demonstrating a trustworthiness in Jesus that is greater than any the world has to offer. And that is our hope in the in-between. It is not the fruit of our trust that we are doing this as the basis of our trust. It is the trustworthiness of God as demonstrated already. And that we can depend on for all time. The incarnation is God personally, physically, historically, and painfully meeting us in all of those fears and more. It is a trustworthiness that is so much greater and so much bigger than our fear. And then the second advent, what we look forward to in his return is that he is trustworthy enough that we can know that he has not abandoned us because we have his spirit now and we can trust that he will return to fully make all things new because he already came in order to reconcile and restore relationship with him. If that is what his first coming inaugurated. How can he go through all of that effort to close the gap between him and us initially and not follow through ultimately? He can't actually abandon or betray our trust any more than he could abandon or betray himself. He wouldn't be God. Okay, on that note, let's see what questions we have this morning. Okay. Do you think self-renunciation and faithful, loyal love frees us up to see God's glory all around us? Yes. Absolutely. By the way, yes and no questions are my favorite. Because if I really don't want to expand on it, I can just say yes or no and be like, next question. But yes, that is exactly what I'm trying to say. Because when we are centering our imagination and our trust on ourselves, our horizons are very, very near. Our imaginations are stunted. And that means that we are unable to see God's glory outside of what our own finite expectations of them might be. We are not open to the ways in which God might surprise us. And we will either ignore the problems, that, the, the, his promises that bewilder us, or we misunderstand them in a way to make them finite and something that we can understand within our horizons. So yes. I do think self-renunciation and faithful, loyal love frees us up to see God's glory all around us. And by the way, there is no such, like, the reason is, is those are, those are the two sides of the same coin. You, you actually, why would you self-renunciate if it's not on the basis of, somebody, of a greater love than one you can have yourself? 
And there is no way, there is no purpose to the self-renunciation if it is not for faithful, loyal love. In fact, you're kind of anticipating where I'm going with communion, and it looks like that's the only question, so let me just roll into that there. Because in the end of that article from David Taylor uh, that I mentioned earlier about the birth narratives being weird and incredible, is he says this, and this is the way that he surprises us, the way God surprises us with what we need but not what we were looking for. He says this, he says, God offers hope instead of good cheer in the face of personal disappointment and systemic evil. God grants joy rather than happiness because joy can account for suffering while happiness cannot. It's a very near horizon. He says, God draws his people into a kind love that bears all things, including death and the loss of privileges, self-renunciation, so that the faithful might become agents of the kind of shalom that Jesus exhibits in his birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Frankly, the greatest barrier we have to loving our neighbor as Christ has loved us is we are trying to do so without renouncing ourselves first. And what Christmas is, what we wait for and long for in Advent is the one who need not do any of that, the only one who had the right to not condescend, did so in love. There are all kinds of challenges for that breaking into our heart and actually softening and warming what has become cold and fragile. But I think the biggest I think the biggest is that we try to hold on to the plate that we just try to add Jesus onto instead of actually allowing him, just handing it all to him and letting him reorder it as he chooses. We need to trust that that's good. And he did that at Christmas, and yet he also revisited that at the Last Supper. When Jesus was with his friends, he took, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. It is broken for you. I have come to invade your brokenness, but not in a way that holds myself above it. I will subject myself to it. Likewise, he took the wine and he poured it out and he says, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the forgiveness of sins. Which, by the way, forgiveness is a willing and glad absorption of injustice. Jesus said, yeah, I'm going to absorb not just the injustice that you will visit upon me on the cross, but the injustice that you visit upon each other. That's why this was shed in love. He says, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you proclaim my death until I return. It's not just announcing kind of frivolously. It's proclaiming a new world order that there is a king that has come that is worth self-renunciation because it's bet he's better. And he loves us enough to welcome us into that. If you want to respond to that invitation to be welcomed into that either for the first time or again and continually because you are his, this is for you. As soon as eight or ten of you are coming in a minute as Danny leads us in worship, as soon as eight or ten are up here at a time, we'll give the elements out and take them together as a family because in Christ we are a new family. 
Jesus, you've shown us that the way up is the way down, that we cannot change what is inside of us unless something from outside of us invades us with a grace powerful enough to do that transformation. And Lord, as we imbibe this bread and wine or juice, Lord, I, I pray that you would, through your presence here, help us to imbibe the freedom of trusting you, the life-giving glory that is being found in you, and the hope that we have that we can trust you for all time. Lord, redeem and save us as you have done and continue to do so. We pray all this in your name. Amen.